Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast that brings you conversations from across the progressive movement. During the show, we speak with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and campaigners about how we come out of these unprecedented times in much better shape than we went in. I'm Francis Foley, your host today and Deputy Director of Compass. Compass is a place where people come together to create the visions, alliances and actions to be the change we wish to see in the world. We're interested in the how of political change as much as the what, and we think conversations like these are a great place to start. Compass members can join the call live and can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to be part of it, go to action.compassonline.org.uk slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, grab your drink of choice and get ready to get complicated. What's very exciting is that tonight we do have a range of our experts in the room. And as we were just discussing before we came on the call, all of their work has been become much more topical in the last year, or has it? That's a question we'll be getting into in lots more detail. Was it ever thus? Um, but joining us to discuss what can be done about Westminster structure and culture are Dr. Hannah White, Deputy Director of the Institute of Government and author of Held in Contempt, uh, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? Jennifer Nadel, who's the co-director of Compassion in Politics, and Darren Hughes, who's the chief, chief executive of the Electoral Reform Society. So I will start off in time-honoured compass fashion to just say to each of you, uh, how are you and where are you? Questions to start with. So we'll start with you, Darren. Uh, I'm in, in Deadford in southeast London, and uh, I'm both excited and slightly disappointed because I've uh, used the Elizabeth line for the first time today, and I've got to middle age and I can no longer follow signs. So I managed to get lost at the crossover point, which is something I used to laugh at other people for doing. So reality is biting, but it's a beautiful new train and people should use it if they get the chance. I'm very topical as well. We might come on to that in terms of the embeddedness of the monarchy and everything we're going to say and do. Uh, Jennifer. Hello, I'm in West London. I just moved into a flat, so it's very, very messy. So I put my sign up behind behind me so no one can see the mess and I'm slightly scared a dog or a child will make um, a bit part appearance so apologies if they do. That's what a lot of people watch this for so if they could just burst through the compassion in politics uh, banner that would be perfect and hello where are you and how are you doing? I am in Westminster and I am generally trying to extract myself from the too grey fervour which has seized the Institute for Government we mostly have spent the day batting off requests from media to comment on a thing which doesn't exist yet. Um, and yeah, I've, I've done a really good job of that. So I'm pleased to be talking uh, to you. I will not be answering questions on a hypothetical report which doesn't exist yet. Or even the whereabouts of Sue Gray. Does anyone know who she is, where she is? <laughs> Poor Sue Gray, she must be battening down the hatchet somewhere as we speak. Okay, so today we've got, as I said, Quite an exciting topic, but also I had to acknowledge straight up, potentially depressing one. So I wanted to start by saying, you know, we can all sit here and wind for the next hour about Westminster. And I think it would be very valid. And I think there is a there is definitely a culture on the left, especially of rolling our eyes when it comes to conversations about Westminster. But I hope tonight to also dig into a little bit questions about context for all of this. So I'll start by asking all of you uh, to set the current slew of crises in some sort of context. And I'm going to start with you, Hannah, um, for your book. 
Um, and I'll start by what we were discussing about just before we came on tonight, which was you decided to write this book back in 2020 before all of any of this happened. But of course, not really, because instances of bad behaviour in Westminster and poor behaviour have been making the news for a very long time. So I wanted to start by asking you, do you think that things are particularly bad right now? Or is it maybe perhaps just that instances of bad behaviour are making news because of increased media scrutiny or perhaps increased public interest and outrage? How do you see the two as interacting? So I think in classic answer, it's a bit of both. Um, I think that, you know, the situation is not new. There have always been uh, the, and will always be uh, sort of issues, um, instances of bad behaviour uh, in, in Westminster. Um, and I think in part that's down to sort of people that go into politics. You know, they tend to be uh, more sort of risk takers, people who um, are prepared to, you know, uh, put a lot on the line in order to do, you know, a career they think is important that they want to pursue. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe more inclined than the rest of the population on, on average to step over the line. I think that at the moment we may be seeing a few more cases than normal for, for three reasons. One is that following the sort of Me Too moment that Westminster had in sort of 2017-18, a lot of work was done to put in place processes and procedures in uh, in the House of Commons, but also I think, you know, parties reflected a bit. And so some of the cases we're seeing are because people have actually felt there is a process that they can report bad behaviour to, and those processes have started to produce results quite slowly, some of them. But some of the, for example, um, cases like, for example, uh, John Burko, uh, having been found to be a, a serial bully and a serial uh, liar by a House of Commons process, you know, he was one of these people who it is a known offender in Westminster, but there was no means of holding him to account for that until those new processes were put in place. So, so there's some of that, some of, some of it is more cases being brought to light. I also think uh, there is, has been a bit of uh, some extent because we had two sudden elections in 2017 and 2019, maybe some of the party vetting of candidates wasn't as hot as it uh, could have been. And so some of what we've seen, for example, the Imran Ahmed Khan case, uh, you know, that isn't some the, the behaviour that he's been now jailed for uh, um, was not something he did as an MP, but before uh, he became an MP. And that is something that you would have expected party processes to have picked up. Um, but didn't maybe because it was all done in a bit of a rush. I don't know that's a, a you know hypothesis in his case, but it's just a sort of example. Um, and then, but the final thing is, I think that there is a, a bit of a sense from the current government that that rules don't necessarily apply, and that sort of cuts across the piece from um, you know the ministerial code to MPs' behaviour to uh, whether we want to follow international law. There's a bit of a tone from the top. I feel that maybe uh, rules are, are not for people in Westminster to follow. And that's obviously something that's been said over Partygate. And I think that that just gives license to people who, as I said at the start, maybe are slightly more likely to step over the line to feel that maybe there won't be consequences if they do. And that might have encouraged a bit of, of inappropriate behaviour. Yeah. So, so to come to you, Jennifer, what, what do you make of that mix? Do you think it's something that we just have to accept from MPs, given the interesting point that Hannah made about the kinds of people who go into politics? Or do you think it is particularly bad? right now and, and how, how do we also judge those two things that against well I agree with um, what Hannah said but I actually do think it is a lot worse now and I think there are a number of factors one I'll just give you one example um, 
Um, 30 years ago, I went and interviewed women MPs. We had 42 in the House of Commons back in 1990. And then we were dealing with what they would term as chauvinism, a pat on the bum or a misplaced compliment or a whistle. And 30 years later, I went back and spoke to those that were still in politics and their younger um, counterparts. Without exception, all of them said the situation had got worse, where once they'd had a pinch on the bump, they now had a rape threat or a death threat. And this is absolutely just untenable, you know, how we can have a democracy functioning when people are worried about their own personal safety and the lives of their children is, um, you know, is really deeply disturbing. So that's one factor. I think also what's changed is the speed of reaction that's required with our 24-7 digital media world. There's such a symbiotic relationship between politics and journalism and the need to come up with answers straight away to give immediate reactions means that people are really just interesting, interested in what's going to be the most impressive soundbite so that they can be seen and heard rather than really taking a step back and considering. And as Hannah said, you know, the message from the top is the rules don't apply. You know, if we look at Brexit, the, pro, the proposed prorogation of parliament, if we look at Brexit, the threat to break international law. You know, these are things which, which Britain, the mother of democracies, would not have been um, as capable of. And certainly it, it doesn't sit with the, um, with the reputation that Britain wants to put forward. And that, I think, comes from the current leadership without a shadow of a doubt. And just one last thing is, is that, you know, Parliament is, is an anachronism. The way that it's run, it should be a museum. And the way that it is run is patriarchal, hierarchical. It comes from traditions where women weren't included, where people from diverse backgrounds weren't included and still often aren't included. And um, until that is addressed, we're not going to have a functioning democracy. So keeping it light and, <laughs> and optimistic, but how do you see this, Darren? I mean, you've been covering... Um, politics in general and Westminster also in particular over the, the past few years, do you think there is anything to be gained from saying, well, look, people do care about this more and maybe in the past people would have overlooked things, but people's standards have changed and actually standards are higher in some respects. And as Hannah alluded to, there are these protocols now in place. Do you think that that's a, a fair comment or do you think that that is still in response to things getting in general worse? I mean, I, I think it is a mixed bag because I think, as, as Hannah said, you know, on, on some things where where the light has shone on on, on areas and on topics, uh, and there's a, re a response or a reaction to it, then you can see some improvements. But I think what the problem is is that any improvements that we see kind of are taking place in a in a sea of disaster of all these other things that are going wrong. And I think that if I maybe if I pick up on the on some of the the, the, the democratic uh, uh, behaviours and, and some of the things that have been, I think running alongside a lot of this uh, as well and bucketing it from 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 the sides is the fact that you know, it's been such a long time since we had a positive general election. Um, you know, we've had the winner-takes-all mentality and uh, that's been to eke out whatever you can to get power and then act as though you've got 100% uh, support. So, you know, we go back to 2010, you know, there was no overall winner, even though there'd been a, you know, a pretty fractious end to the Brown government in 2010. So there was a coalition and there was a sense that we might start to do things a little bit more cooperatively. 
Uh, but the Conservatives spent most of that time strategizing of how to, you know, effectively knock over their, their coalition partner and took them down from sort of in the high 50s to the low 10s in terms of seats. And when that happened, that was the end of cooperative working. It was an un unexpected election. You remember the, the idea of Labour and the SNP working together was weaponised by the Conservatives in England to turn parts of the union in a different direction. 2016, you're all in there to, um, not in this country, but obviously Trump um, uh, gave people a, a sense of not really understanding what was going on, being surprised. The, the referendum was so bitterly close, but the winning side, because it surprised the losing side, acted as though 52% was the people and the other 48% sort of didn't matter at all. And so, again, that kind of um, winner takes all smothering out, uh, smothering out people. Uh, 2017, that, that election where uh, it was a surprise to, to everyone, the results, and that meant that people didn't feel confident about projecting their political opinion because no one wanted to get everything wrong for a second year or third year in a row, 2015, 2016, 2017. And then that 2019 election was just such a, from a voter's point of view, just an, an absolute uh, disaster. So I think when you, in terms of the tone of the campaign, I mean, so, so I'm, you know, I, I accept the outcomes of all these things, but I just think when you look back over this last, just over a decade at the at the public elections we've held, uh, the, the, the style of the way the democratic question has been addressed and the behaviour afterwards once power has been allocated has, has been just one other factor amongst other, the other things that have been mentioned that has just been so profoundly negative. But I do think, uh, that that people's patience with all this is coming coming to an end. And I was just to finish. I was fascinated at the election just held at the weekend in Australia, where uh, you know this issue of political integrity was brought up by people standing as independents. And the incumbent Conservative government did what governments always do. They claim that a story is within the bubble because they're desperate for it to stay there. So they keep saying it in the hope it won't burst out. Partygate was once in the bubble, if you recall. <laughs> See, it feels feels like a rather large bubble uh, now in that respect. But but that, that issue came up after quite a long period of winner-takes-all conservative rule in Australia. So sometimes these things do burst out, and I guess what happens is when that takes place, where are the positive, pro positive progressive, uh, inclusive ideas ready to seize that moment, uh, as opposed to, as you introduced it by saying, we can just complain about all these terrible things that are going on. I think that's a really good point, Darren, because it, it, you can also get locked into this battle of then seeing this as the sum total of politics, which actually also does a lot to kind of take away the force of opposition, which is holding the government to account on actual policies and what it's doing with the country. And that is part of this, you know, where people's attention at. And actually, in terms of also being served by Partygate, I think that's an interesting point. Do we actually want to be focusing on that the whole time? Or do we also want to be looking at what the government's doing in their wider agenda? So to stay with you for a second, Darren, I mean, you hail originally from New Zealand and have had a political career there as well. I wonder if you could give us a, a brief kind of comparison of the two. I mean, obviously, it's a huge question, but just in terms of what maybe surprised you about coming to work in the UK in terms of its culture and structure, and maybe with a particular view to how Westminster works. Okay, well, maybe over the next 45 minutes, what I can set out for you is a clear example. <laughs> no, no, I'll do it much quicker than that, but there are so many... Uh, differences. And I think what, what's what's fascinating about it is that a lot of the traditions in a Westminster sense were exported out to some Commonwealth countries, New Zealand being one. So a lot of a lot of traditions uh, flow, flowed from there. But what's interesting is that in most of those countries, they've moved away from uh, some of the more sharper edges of, of, of those things. And I think for New Zealand, probably the biggest change was, was that move to uh, proportional representation about 30 years ago. I think that was a a, a decisive moment. Um, because it not only changed, you know, the mathematical way politicians got there, that's the obvious point. Uh, what it opened the door to was a different culture of doing 
term politics. And that didn't didn't start immediately because the first one or two parliaments were still staffed by people from the old first-past-the-post days. But if you fast forward to today, 2022, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and most of her cabinet are products of a PR system. They've come up through a minority government, coalition government. Uh, even now that she's in a majority, she still works with another party, not because there's any legal or political requirement to, but because she thinks that's good for the tone and culture of politics. Well, that's impossible to imagine in New Zealand's system 40 years ago. So I think that, that that's been a big a big change. And it also then uh, just opened the opportunity for, for more, a more diverse uh, House of Representatives as well. So uh, on, on, on all the underrepresented groups that, that we can all so easily uh, think of in terms of access to power and numbers of representation on both those topics uh, in the New Zealand system, including on the centre-right of politics, there's been such a, a massive change in, in personnel, but also moving beyond the, the very tokenistic way of saying, well, you're an Indigenous MP, we'll make you a minister and you can look after, I'll look after Indigenous issues. You know, we've, we've sort of matured much more beyond that. So I think those are, those are probably some of the, the key things, that both the seats matching votes, mathematical side of it, uh, but also the cultural shift in terms of cooperation and working together. And I think the fact that both sides of politics have led governments now shows that it's, it's possible for different ideologies to adapt to this as well. And I think that's important for the long term, uh, even if a lot of people on the call obviously would like to see things go a certain way. You've got to think about uh, sort of broader than that. And I think that that's been a, a big change in New Zealand as well. Absolutely. So obviously, full disclosure, Darren is a lecturer of Reform Society, <laughs> chief exec, and we at Compass are big proponents of PR. So I'm happy that that got in there soon and gave us also a note of hope that actually things can change if you also change structures. It's not all about individuals. But to come back to you, Hannah, um, I mean, when I was reading your book, I was fascinated by this, this, this question of actually... We talk a lot about British exceptionalism when we talk about Britain's relationship to other countries. But when it comes to Westminster, it does sometimes seem that things are particularly bad in the actual site of Westminster, not just Westminster, sort of symbolically as the centre of power in the UK. Do you, I mean, you must get asked this a lot about your book. Do you think that's true or do you think that's exaggeration? And maybe you could say something about the specific place of Westminster, because obviously that is you know, and there's, without any spoilers for Hannah's book, there's a good bit in your book where you also discuss the location of Westminster and the actual site of it, given that, obviously a topic of discussion, given its state of ill repair, and there's obviously lots to be made by newspaper columnists of the parliament is falling down line. But how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, so I think that it is not just a perception that Westminster is in a particularly bad place. I mean, the statistics on public trust in Parliament in the UK bear out the fact that the UK is in a particularly bad place if you compare it to other countries in Europe, for example, you know, some of them incredibly in the last 30 years have managed to increase trust in their Parliament. And we are, I think, uh, the last um, survey that was available, we were amongst the lowest three uh, countries in Europe for, for trust in our in our parliamentary system. So, yeah, it's not just a perception, it's the reality. And I think it's a reality for a number of reasons. And these are themes I look at in the book. One of them is this sense, I think, from politicians sometimes that it, it is just an immutable fact that the public don't trust politicians and they don't take account of actually the fact that the UK is in a particularly bad place. And so there's a, there's a sort of fatalism that, you know, there's nothing really we can do about this and isn't, isn't it a shame, but no real sort of sense that, the, that it's their responsibility to address it. And I think if they were going to address it, there are a number of, of things they would want to do. One is 
um, think about the diversity of Parliament in a serious way, just as Darren has said. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the question about um, the voting system and the questions about diversity are not, uh, you know, it's chicken and egg, and then they're, they're, they are intertwined. So there's things you can do about diversity which are, would be different if we had a different voting system. Um, but I think the fact that Westminster doesn't seem descriptively representative of the population is, is not good for, for its credi credibility and reputation. There's also this sense among MPs that, that they are sort of the exception to every rule, which I think distances politicians from Parliament and makes people feel as though po politics isn't being done for them, it's being done for the benefit of politicians. And then I think, as you say, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of problems, and, and Jennifer made this point as well, around the actual building. And it's easy to see the fact that the Palace of Westminster is falling down as a sort of metaphor for our politics but it's you know it's a bit it's a bit of an obvious one but what i look at in the book is uh, are the the the, way, the number of ways in which you can see mp's reluctance to address the problems of the palace of westminster are all the same sorts of problems which uh, make mp's not good or well equipped at, at, at addressing other aspects of reform in westminster um, so it's not just, you know, a sort of a metaphor in its simplest sense. It also shows us lots of problems with the governance and, and structures um, and so on. And as, as Jennifer said, you know, it's not just that it's falling down. It's that it's a building which is completely inappropriate now for a modern parliament to be meeting in. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of affection for, you know, the sort of gothic, neo-gothic sort of site. But... I think there's probably more affection for it among MPs who've spent their lives sort of trying to get there and sit there than there is among the public generally. And my hunch is that most members of the public would exchange a parliament that happens to sit in the Palace of Westminster for one that sits somewhere else but is more effective because it's it's not sort of in, squeezed into odd-shaped rooms and a chamber that all MPs can't sit in and isn't accessible to the public and embeds all sorts of hierarchies and exclusions which mean that it's not accessible to the public. And I don't actually think, you know, a lot of MPs are very attached to it. I don't think the public are quite as attached as MPs think they are. To come to you, Jennifer, on that point, you do a lot of work with, with MPs and other people about, about culture. But how do you see that sort of strange relationship then between structure, both in the literal sense of the, of the building and also in the way that we, we work? And as you mentioned earlier, the hierarchy, and I'm going to come on to that in a second. But how do you see the interplay between culture and structure? Maybe what do you suggest in the work that you do that helps sort of shift that from one angle or another? I think they're really closely related. And just to pick up where Hannah left off, you know, one of the most important things about the way the House of Commons is laid out is that it's two swords lengths distance between the two benches. So the whole system was designed for a conflictual, adversarial, violent system. And that is not the best way at which decisions, inclusive decisions are taken. And so it isn't just the architecture that needs to change, it's the whole way in which we do politics. And I was very heartened to hear what Darren said about the changes that are impossible in New Zealand. But if we have a situation which is based on winning and losing, which we obviously have with the first past the post system, but we also have with the debating system, you can't cooperate and you end up with party systems that prize loyalty over integrity so we for example would end the whipping system you know the very name the whipping system says it all you know that parliament should be run 
by by whips people who can threaten or entice people to their 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 MPs to to act in ways that may be against their conscience. That's number one. Number two is we would um, completely redesign the floor of the house, hopefully move it to another building. But if we couldn't, there are things that can be done straight away. We don't need to have shouting. We don't need to have jeering. We don't need to have bullying. We can have a parliament where MPs behave as well as, as the public do in their places of work. And when we talk about, I noticed there was a question in the chat about how do we get the public to care? I think the public do care because there is such a gulf between what's expected of us, the rules that we're expected to obey, whether it's in the classroom, the board meeting, you know, Partygate's another example of this. But we are expected to abide by rules of decency. We're expected to communicate in a polite way and yet turn on the television or or go online and watch Prime Minister's questions. And we have something, a pantomime. And the thing is that it's become so normalised in this country, we don't even look at it as a problem. It's just how things are done. And that's another problem with our parliament, that, that really misogyny, classism, all of those things are able to hide behind the veneer of tradition and history. And that's just not good enough anymore. You know, we now need a parliament that is fully inclusive of women, that is fully inclusive of, of the people that make up this nation. And we can't have one if it's based on men, if it's based on conflict, and it's based on playground antics. You know, how, how can you dare to speak something nuanced if you're really in the chamber to win a debating point? And there's such a big contrast to how MP... Uh, between how MPs behave in committees where we see this cooperation and collaboration and interest in getting the truth out and how the business of the house is conducted. So that's the first thing that I would address. I would just say you've all got to behave like your adults. That seems like a reasonable request to be fair. Okay, so I have two hunches that I want to try out with you all about maybe why Westminster is so distinctively dreadful when it comes to this culture and I think the two are interlinked so I'd be interested to hear what you all think about this um so the first is, is this question of stability so we talk a lot in sort of democratic reforms and campaigning sectors about the fact that the UK I mean you said it earlier Jennifer about the sort of mother of democracies and has staked a lot of claim on that and has talked a lot about it being a, a very long-standing parliamentary democracy but I think what's less talked about sometimes is, and obviously there's huge, huge benefits of that, having lived in other countries and seeing that, you know, the, the sort of legacies of other kind of regime changes, which cause a lot of tumult and kind of turmoil in, in, in the population. And of course, we, we have benefited from that in a lot of key ways. But what I think is less talked about is the corollary of that is also that the system has become quite entrenched and arguably quite resistant to reform. And then the second element of that, which I do think is also interlinked, is that the political system in the UK is so inextricably bound up with our class system. Um, from the top with the kind of the, the monarch's position as our head of state down through the layers of the lords and ladies, peerages, the aristocracy, it's all built into the structure of our political system. And unlike other countries, which sometimes had a reset, sometimes a dramatic reset after a huge catastrophe like a war, we've never been able to kind of unseat these hundreds and hundreds of years of kind of history which are baked into the, into the class system and you know despite the name the house of commons 
the House of Commons itself is, whilst it's made some improvements in the last few years, as you all alluded to, still grossly unrepresentative of the British public. In particular, with regard to class, you only have to look at the figures and statistics around the numbers of millionaires in the cabinet, which is always which is drawn out. But it actually goes across parties and, and across the House as well. So I suppose my question to each of you is, isn't a reckoning with this hierarchy of privilege long overdue, but it, you know, is it possible to do this in an incremental way, I suppose, moving on to the solutions? Like, how do we deal with this if it's all so baked in? I'll come to you, Hannah, first, and then we'll go Darren and Jennifer. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I do think, I mean, one of the things I look at in the book is the, one of the things I think is problematic about the House of Commons and the way it operates is the fact that its processes and its procedures have accreted over time in you know, over centuries and not been sort of rationalised along the way. And as Jennifer's been saying, what they do is they embed a whole set of hierarchies and preferences for the people who have operated the institution up until this point, largely speaking. So the fact that the House of Commons has been run by largely upper-class, white, able-bodied men um, who often have common experiences at boarding school and Oxbridge and then come to Westminster means that the House of Commons is largely set up to be a comfortable environment for those people. And anyone who wants to challenge that, it's really easy to make them feel that it's, you know, but this is just the way we do politics and it is, you, you, you are not valuing some aspect of history um, in challenging it to say, you know, this, this doesn't make me feel comfortable. It's not the way I would like to operate. And there is just this valuing of history as a kind of inherent good rather than it just having, it just being an unexamined way of doing things because we've always done it that way. So, um, as I say, I, I, I look at this specifically in the book from a kind of process and, and procedure point of view, but I think it, it totally plays into the diversity aspect because it's not Obviously, the diversity of the House is driven by the voting system and, and very largely by the uh, um, practices by which political parties choose their candidates. And that then is hugely affected by the first past the post system and the fact that we have, I don't know, a third of seats or safe seats that haven't changed hands since 1945. And so basically, it's just the party members in that constituency who are choosing the MP rather than actually the uh, constituents in that constituency who are choosing it. So obviously, there's all that. But I also think it's really incumbent on MPs who happen to be in the, in the House of Commons now to think about what the environment is that people are looking at and whether, the, whether it's an inclusive environment, that attractive environment that people are going to want to become part of, because it clearly isn't. And there are things that they can do about it, as Jennifer says, in terms of changing their behaviour and so on, where, again, it's really easy for the people who operate the status quo to say, but this is, you know, just the way that politics ought to be done, because we've always done it this way. When actually, if the, you had a different set of MPs, uh, politics would be done completely differently. Yeah, absolutely. So coming to you, Darren, I'm not allowing you to say electoral reform, because although we all agree with electoral reform, I want to hear, you know, what do you think about the fact that if, if it is due to sort of stability and to a certain extent to our past entrenchment, what, how do we get at that? What, what is mm. one thing that we could do, apart mm. from electoral reform, which I'm fully behind? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think in a sense, yes, people hide behind tradition. This is the way we've always done things. And, you know, history is full of that. Something that was quite practical once 
200 years later as a matter of deep spiritual belief. And it was never, never set out to be that at all. Um, but, but, but I actually, I'm struck in some ways by the instability of the last few years. I'm, I'm struck by, uh, you know, it's a, Cameron left over the Brexit referendum, which was an unstable result for him. He didn't predict it. Uh, May and Johnson have spent most of their premiership in an unstable situation, not knowing whether they're going to survive. Um, uh, there's not really been a settled period in the opposition, maybe apart uh, until maybe just this most recent period, uh, uh, where, where, that, where there hadn't been sort of questions about well, what's going on there. And, and then that, that's sort of on the personnel side. And on, the, on the policy side, there's been some incredible public policy lurches in the last decade. And this has not delivered the, you know, Theresa May's strong and stable government. Uh, you know, well, at least we've got this chaos with Ed Miliband. I think that's where we're all getting <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, that, well, I mean, there's a classic thing, isn't there? There was a thing today about the energy cap. That was a policy he brought in that was going to be uh, sort of almost North Korean in, in style. It was introduced by a Conservative government after he'd left being the Labour leader. So, so, the, so this has not been grown-up serious stuff. I mean, you know, Pr Pretty Patel began the government as a backbench MP popping up on every... Um, news story to, to parrot the line of the government. Now she's the Home Secretary, one of the great officers of state. I mean, this is, this is, we're at this crunch point now where the instability of the political game playing is now impacting strongly on the public policy uh, angles. And as a, as a humble migrant, I've learned more from the private eye. I can't believe these stories don't get far, go far further uh, than that in terms of just the, the, the egregious policy making that goes on. So I, I look at it and I, I don't see a lot of stability. I see instability. And I see some of these changes we're talking about as providing much more certainty uh, for, for, for people. On the, on, on the class situation, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And I think it's another example of things people hide behind. And, and probably the best example of that is, is the House of Lords, which people claim to want to change. But, you know, it's one of those things that when the public are asked about it, they don't agree with the current setup. We've got plenty of data that shows that, but it kind of hides in plain sight. And those that know about it, kind of a, is this awful, awkward thing where there are either, seems to me there are three, three groups of people. One, people are already there. We give you chapter and verse as to why it's so crucial. Secondly, those who use it to lobby or to influence or to try and change policy, you see it as quite a good and useful uh, tool for their work that's got nothing to do with legislating in that sense. Then there's this third group, which is the most nefarious of all, which is all those people involved in the Westminster world who hope to go there one day. So not only will they re refuse to criticise it, but they, they won't abolish it or change it because they want to be there. And to me, it just seems that there's people who have a sense of entitlement and they should be there. But then sadly, there's also some people who haven't participated in politics for a little bit, got used to the traditions, as both Jennifer and Hannah have said. They, they, they uh, sort of over-identify with something that's not from their background. They then want to go into this into this chamber. So I think... To me, although you know we, we mentioned the problems with the House of Commons, and you said I couldn't say that again, so I go to the House of Lords and I say that's that that also shows some of the cultural and class issues that I think, and I think that should be a priority for for you know ab abolition and replacement with something that's far more far more democratic and that can reach out into the, all the parts of the UK in a way that the current setup can't. I think it just just reinforces. Uh, and it doesn't probably doesn't need to have any bishops if I can venture a controversial opinion there as well. <laughs> wow, you're going to get yourself cancelled, Darren. Um, <laughs> over to you, Jennifer. So uh, to bring all of these thoughts together, I'm about to come to questions. I can see some really great ones loaded up in the chat. I totally take your point, Darren. It's an important point about the instability of the last few years. But what still remains to me is the fact that this doesn't get at the structural stuff. Then people think that you just change the people 
and that will solve the instability you saw with Ed Miliband. You saw every every prime minister offers some some like version of stable, whereas in fact, what is actually at the heart of this is the deep instability and 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 decay of our sort of political system. And so, if I may ask you, Jennifer, I actually don't like the idea, and I had no hand in. I'd like to say the title of this episode, which is about fixing Westminster, because to me that suggests that it was somehow it somehow become broken. It was one time functioning really well. Well. I mean, point to that time, please. I'm not sure it ever has been. But to bring those thoughts together, how do you see us going forward? You know, some of us would say a complete overhaul is necessary, and I would be in favour of something I had many times advocating for a constitutional convention to look at the whole thing together. But that's a huge task. And which government is going to sign up to that without mandate from the public? Well, the first thing I'd say is that this isn't rocket science. You know, this mother of democracies has birthed the much more functional children. You know, if you go to Scotland, you will see MPs in the debating chamber sitting behind desks and using their inside voices rather than their outside voices. So ironically, this parliament has birthed more successful, more modern politics. Yes, it would be great to start again, but there's something dangerous about that. There's something dangerous in the air at the moment when we start to talk about how broken our democracy is that feeds into those forces that that think democracy is done with, that it's not the best way to run things. So I think we have to be really careful about how we have this conversation. But there are things that can be done straight away. And yeah, it's much more exciting to start all over again and have a grand design. But just really simple things. We've got Compassion and Politics has got a report out tomorrow, which looks at the way MPs offices are staffed and how MPs, you know, there's no HR, proper HR facility. There are so many, you know, if we had independent HR body, if MPs were obliged to have job inductions, we would like to see work experience, you know, there is a lack of professionalism in how particularly ministers take on their roles. They're in for two minutes and then out. You know, I would like to see the, the next Secretary of State for Health going to do some job experience on a hospital ward before she or he takes their place. Let's bring people with lived experience into the decision-making process. Let's stop politics being so removed from the issues that it has such an immense impact on. So I think there are a number of fixes we could introduce while we're waiting for the opportunity to redesign the whole thing. Hello, this is Gabriel from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Eliza. Here's Eliza on why she joined the Compass community. My name is Eliza. I've been a Compass member for about three or four years, I think. What drew me to Compass was the fact that it's cross-party and it's also not a party. I had a light bulb moment about elections, which was no one's going to win except the Tories under this system, and we have to work together. Having been previously a member of the Labour Party and then joining the Green Party, I really wanted to see parties working together and we have people that are politicians, MPs, trade union leaders, etc. And it's quite level. There's no big hierarchy. It's quite an honest, open space where people come together. You will hear from people from all around the political spectrum actually debating the hard stuff. It's actually, let's find a solution to the problems that we have and let's do it together. We need this progressive alliance. And I would like to see people who are passionate about getting the Tories out 
in the next election and getting proportional representation in. Come and join Compass now and actually swell the movement because without people there's no power and that's what we need right now. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast. And now back to the conversation. So to come to questions, forgive me, we slightly went over there because we have three excellent panellists, but I know we have some brilliant questions loaded up in the in the Q&A section. Gabriel, who's up first? Yeah, thanks so much, everyone. Uh, okay, the, our first round of panellists are all having tech difficulties, so I'm going to read their questions uh, on their behalf. The first one comes from Anne James, and Anne asks, are political parties legally required to go through some kind of process or checks in order to select their parliamentary candidates? If not, might that help? A Guardian correspondent today suggested a license to hold public office. And then we've got uh, another question from Anne, actually, here. Uh, Anne asks, would a circular House of Commons help? Uh, picking up on, on Jennifer's point about the, the uh, sort of antagonistic design of the chamber. Uh, and then we've got one more here from Andy McGregor, who asks, how can we move the agenda on from the personal misdeeds of MPs onto the far more important issues where the government is behaving in a very anti-democratic way? For example, the restrictions on noisy protests, reducing the independence of the Electoral Commission, prioritisation of the NHS and the cost of living crisis. There needs to be better issues based holding to account of the government by an effective opposition. Fascinating. OK, great, great crop of questions. Licensed to hold public office, the lesser known of the Bond films. What do you make of that, Darren? And which ones would you want to pick up from that line of questions? Well, as far as, as, far as I know, there's no legal requirements uh, on parties other than presumably to make sure that they they meet their the eligibility for for being a candidate and being an elector, holding the right um, uh, citizenship and and uh, be, being over eighteen and you know on and on and on like that. But I don't, I don't think that there's any other, other other than that. So it's an interesting point. But but the other uh, the other panelists might know more about what what's required for for parties in terms of a returning officer, electoral commission kind of perspective. On the um, on the, the the chamber, I know that's a point in Hannah's book, so maybe I should just leave that one for for, for her about the uh, shape of the chamber. And on on the the final question from from Andy about some of the other things that are going on, that that's absolutely right. We just had the the elections bill go through with uh, changes to the electoral commission, which are, which are really terrible. They're, they're exactly the sort of things the UK goes around the world telling other countries and emerging democracies not to do, and it's happened uh, happened here. It had the compulsory voter ID provisions, which is based entirely on partisan anecdote, nothing to do with, um, with with evidence and will put up more barriers. And I think will result in more people not getting to vote by mistake because they don't have something with them. They do have ID, they don't have it with them, they don't have time to go back. I think that'll be the story of, uh, uh, um, it could end up uh, affecting a lot more middle-class Tory seats than they've uh, maybe thought through. Um, but but also yeah, you know, some of those protest ch- changes uh, that that uh, that have been in there as well, and I think what's happened on that just quickly is to say a lot of organisations have got together on that and worked on a coalition. And although it wasn't able to be stopped, it drew so much attention to it to the point that the select committee in Parliament, to the majority of Conservative members, recommended against it. The House of Lords rejected it on several times. It made it very difficult for the government. And I think if you wind the Owen Patterson situation into that, hopefully the lesson that the government might have learned is that constantly writing the rules for short-term partisan benefit for themselves, it ends up sort of exploding in their face. And so I, I hope that's the lesson that's learned. But but absolutely right that we, we, there's a lot of things going on at the moment under the under the kind of the radar that need attention drawn to them. And, and I know there are a lot of organisations trying to do that. Hanno, which ones do you want to take up from, from that question? Get, um, all, all of that, any of those round, that round of questions? 
Yeah, I'll start by just picking up on that last point that Darren made about the Patterson case. I mean, I think that's a that's a really interesting one because obviously the government's inclination was to stop Owen Patterson having to face the consequences of what he'd done. They then had to construct an argument as to why it wasn't uh, appropriate for him to be held to account for that. They did that by talking about the adequacy of the of the of the system and whether there was an appeals mechanism and so on. And the consequence of that has been a standards committee uh, in, in inquiry, which uh, I believe is reporting later today. I mean, it remains to be seen what they say, but I think that it's possible that having kicked off a process looking at whether the system was sufficiently robust and appropriate, the, the government may end up finding that the committee wants to strengthen it in various ways, which may not have been the, the government's initial uh, intention. Just to go to the one which uh, Darren kindly lobbed my way about the shape of the chamber. I mean, I do think that the, as, as Jennifer's also said, that the shape of the chamber has a, has a direct effect on the kind of tone of politics sometimes, the, the fact that it is very antagonistic, even though the fact that they sit opposite each other actually comes from the fact that originally the House of Commons sat in a chapel. So you would think it was not supposed to be antagonistic. You would think it was supposed to be uh, very uh, uh, calm and religious, but it doesn't have that effect. I mean, I think there are things about the chamber which are um, inappropriate now that not all MPs can uh, sit in it at any one time, that if they do all want to sit in it, they practically have to sit on each other's knees, which puts a lot of uh, MPs off going in at the, at the busiest times, and that uh, wheelchair users, for example, can't sit on uh, their own benches. They have to sit on the floor in the middle, all those sorts of things are inappropriate. That said, I don't think that it's a panacea. I don't think that you give, give, you know, the House of Commons a round chamber and suddenly everyone starts being uh, nice to each other and more collaborative. So I think, you know, it, it might be uh, something which has shaped our politics, but there's going to be, need to be a lot more else done uh, to, to unwind the situation we've got into than just changing the shape of the, of the chamber. Yeah, although I suppose bringing in changes like that would ca cause issues like this to raise up the political agenda as well. It's just an end to talking about this sort of thing. And it's yeah. just hard to do, hard to get out the question of culture, isn't it? Um, Jennifer, which of those would you want to pick up on? Um, well, first of all, the licensed public office, I think there should be some kind of psychological testing in there as well. Um, because, you know, those who can survive in our current environment normally have a level of disassociation from their feelings. And that does not necessarily lead to good decisions. There are also some basic things like Section 106 of the Equality Act. If political parties were obliged to provide diversity data on selection of candidates, that could begin to make a difference. Um, but in terms of the question about the substantive issues, you know, we are seeing really fundamental rights coming under attack, both on the other side of the Atlantic and here and and the onslaught, you know, that is going to come the the Human Rights Act way is truly, truly terrifying. And the problem with the pantomime that we're witnessing at the moment is it does detract attention away. And one of the other things that's happened is that politics has become dominated by personalities, whereas it needs to be dominated by principles. It needs to be anchored in values. And then it matters slightly less who is holding the reins at the top and slightly more what the values that a party stands for. But when you have, have politicians that are willing to jettison values in order to win votes, 
it's very difficult to have any kind of stability. Absolutely. So, Gabriel, I think we've got time for another round of questions. Do we have some people whose mics are working? <laughs> yeah, I think we're, I think we're we're going to uh, let Darren off the off, off the leash and allow him to talk about electoral reform. Maybe now. That's the first oh, question. No. First question comes from Laura Parker. Laura, it's almost, like... almost as if we set this whole thing up. Hi, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a complete fix. Um, it's really, really interesting discussion. Uh, I'd just like you perhaps all to comment, um, or Darren at least, to comment for another three hours on, um, on how reform of the electoral system might reduce antagonism in politics so what it would mean to sort of parties and the way that that they behave or or work together excellent so don't worry darren i will allow you to answer that uh, shortly uh gabriel should we get a couple more in as well yeah the next one comes from duncan mckinnis yeah uh, hello yes um in light of the recent australian election uh, what do the panelists think of compulsory voting um i personally think pr is better alongside voluntary voting because i think um Compulsory voting creates blandness in, in politics. And do we have time for one more, Gabriel? Yeah, this one comes from Colin Miller. Hi there. Um, my question was, how can we make uh, constitutional, constitutional and government reform something that will resonate with the voters? Because the kind of change we so desperately need won't happen unless the government, that's Labour progressive in this case, feels it's important to voters and there is a lot to do. 100%. That is a juicy one. I like that one a lot. This question about also imagination is something that I think is, is really important in this debate. It's not just about, this is why I don't like the term fixing Westminster, actually. It's not about fix. It's about imagining what politics could be like. And, and I think that's that's crucial to questions about constitutional change. It can't just be about technocratic change. I'm sorry, using my host privilege there. I'm going to come to Jennifer first, then to Darren to have a three-hour conversation about PR, and then finally we'll come back to Hannah at the end. Jennifer. The first thing is I'm so glad that that so many in Labour now back electoral reform. I can remember as a young activist in the 80s pushing the idea and being told that I hadn't understood the nature of politics, that it was a war and what did I what did I think I was doing? But you know, it's about connection, it's about human connection. I know speaking to women MPs, um, they form a connection that goes across parties you know speaking you know to you know take someone like Stella Creasy with the battles that she's had it's not always her own party who are the most supportive and the very idea that you have that you're all in the same boat that you have to get along if you want the boat to move forward in the same direction I think is 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 an absolute no-brainer I don't know that blandness is such a bad thing I think we could do with less excitement and more functionality i think if, if the story about being about policy rather than than scandals that would be a really welcome respite excellent so sorry diane i'm, I'm being quite harsh on you uh, partly to cover my own back because obviously i clearly support a, a pr but can you get into laura's question maybe a little bit about what what you think it would be different it's not just about the justice of it right it's also what changes it might have and maybe reflect on new zealand again as well because i think that's a fascinating example yeah that's what i was, that's what I was thinking about doing because i think it's a it, it's a good question both in terms of the intra and inter-party relationships so i think you know for one thing that gets overlooked about first past the post is that if you if you go you know, sort of seesaw from one side to the other, often on these artificial vote shares, then a lot of governments come in and throw out lots of what the last government did. And, you know, after 12 years of Conservative government, think how many Labour initiatives 
from those three terms, and Labour doesn't normally get three terms in the UK, uh, unlike other parties uh, or countries around the world, have been wound back. It shows you why winning is important, but also making sure when you leave office, your ideas have become part of the, the, the accepted norm. And I think in New Zealand that has happened because Labour-led governments had to work with other parties to cement in legislation. They got elected, re-elected, re-elected again. And so by the time a change of government happened, the political ground has shifted. And I noticed when the government I was associated with, Helen Clark's government moved and then the National Party came into lead the government, many of the signature policies that they had absolutely done cried, they just accepted because they wanted to then work with parties who'd work with us in order to put them in in the first place. So I think you get much more smooth stability even though those, you know, obviously there are still key differences and it doesn't all become pixie dust, but that, that's better. I think the other antagonism argument I would point to is that we currently force a lot of people to be in the same political party that healthily should be in different parties but still working together. And I think that uh, that, that actually is a, is a maturity sign about how you get people to say, look, I'm broadly like this person, but we do have these differences, and to pretend to be in the same party uh, is crazy. And it's very unfair on the voter because they have no idea. Uh, what faction they're voting for when they when they go down to vote for their single choice at the ballot box. So I, I just have Laura's question on, on antagonism, policy and personnel. Uh, it can it can definitely make a make, make make a difference, and and it's worth it's worthwhile trying this. And that's you know, it's Colin's point to to show to the public that actually there, there is a different way and a better way of doing it, uh, and it delivers better government. Um, and if you're also from a partisan point of view, if you're from a side that loses and loses and loses and loses, you know, being able to win occasionally. And show competence and fairness and compassion and 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 a, a ability to get things done uh, that helps up anyone's political project. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, the the reason the Compass supports the Progressive Alliance is partly partly because we don't see those factions as getting the prominence and recognition that they deserve within these parties because we want to hear all these different parts of the debate. And you can make better alliances when you're separate. Hannah, can I so just pick up on? Yeah, one, Sorry, I was just going to pick up on one point there which is at the moment we have votes that are based on which ideology do we want and the focus is very often not on how do we solve the problem of hunger or how do we solve the problem of underperforming children the focus is on whose policy is going to win or whose ideology is going to win and so I think one of the benefits of having electoral reform and and politicians being obliged if they want anything to happen to work together is that we will have a more issue-based politics. How do we solve this problem rather than how do we ensure our recipe, our ideological recipe is the one that has dominance? Yeah, great point. Um, Hannah, so to, to finally end with you, you can pick up any of those questions that you would like, but also final waving of the book happening here, or maybe not final, <laughs> penultimate waving of the book. What do you think, what, what would you really like people to take away from your book in terms of what can be done about some of these things? We've talked about PR, we've talked about sort of the constitutional imagination, Colin's point. What, what would you like to pick up that you really want people to kind of focus on? Yeah, I mean, to go back to Colin's question and how to get people to care about this stuff, I think that really is the question for us all. I mean, it's a question that the Institute of Government wrestles with a lot. You know, we care about a lot of stuff that people find very boring. Um, and about the process of government and how, you know, government can be more effective. And we know that politicians who are the people we require to do this stuff care about what the public care about. So our question is all, always, you know, yes, there's often, you know, should be government self-interest in doing some of the things that the IFG argues for, because if 
policy is better scrutinised. It's less likely to blow up in your face when you fail to recognise, you know, to, to find some flaw in it because the Parliament hasn't looked at it properly. But governments don't always recognise the sort of self-interest argument. They are normally looking to the people. So how do we get people to care? I think it is what we need to overcome is the sort of inertia and sense of, you know, that the broad sense if if you if and you know most people don't spend much time thinking about politics and if they do they have this broad sense if it ain't broke don't fix it i think that as we saw say for example with the av referendum it turned it it, it seemed to be quite easy to have a narrative that um you know this is a very complicated thing you won't necessarily you know you don't don't necessarily understand it and doesn't really have any tangible benefits and what we've got is this great system with all these benefits and I think it's really, and, and you know, you, we've touched on it already today, but it's articulating the positive side of change because people don't necessarily, you know, go for change. Um, obviously, Brexit referendum, uh, counterpoint to this argument, but people don't necessarily go for change unless there's a positive vision of what difference is that it could make. And I think that that is what we need to focus on. Um, and I think that, that, you know, there are examples around the world of people managing to put forward a positive agenda of, of a world that could look different and getting people infused by that. But it is a really difficult task because some of this stuff is complicated and the benefits, you know, unless you, you know, unless you have examples and, you know, and have the time, I think that was the issue with the AV referendum, you need the time to communicate this stuff to people. Seeing all of our brand points there, the hope you change your side of compass and the it's complicated promise I didn't tee Hannah up to say that right at the close of play. So so a huge, huge thank you to our guests, Jennifer, Darren and Hannah. It reminds us of all of the things that you can get in the chat and final wave of this book. You really should read it. I really enjoyed it. It's got all my annotations in it. It really made me think differently about a lot of ways of, uh, of approaching this whole question, as Hannah says, and how you have the constitutional imagination to think differently about this, but things can change. I think that's a big, big point. And we managed to get through the whole conversation without mentioning tractors. So well done, everybody. Uh, finally, uh, next time on It's Bloody Complicated, on the 14th of June, we'll be hearing about the four-day week. So we'll be hearing from campaigners and from businesses who've tried a four-day week. I know this is going to be a popular one. I've been uh, encouraging Neil to listen to it, to think about maybe our staff moving to a four-day week. Who knows? Uh, he's not yet convinced, I don't think. But Thank you very, very much to all of our uh, panellists here tonight. Uh, please do go and follow all of their work. Everybody is doing amazing things in the sector. And to just keep that things on an optimistic note, I would like to um, say, do read the book, do read the report. And there's plenty that all these organisations are doing to make change on the day-to-day, -day, not waiting for change to come to them. So uh, thank you for everyone for your great questions and to Gabriel, as always, for your amazing moderation skills. And good night, everyone. If you like what you heard today and want to be part of building a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. Plus, you'll be able to join us live on future calls like this one. You can tweet Compass Office or email francis at compassonline.org.uk. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. After all, it's only fair they know it's bloody complicated too.